So here we are going into this fifth week of the COVID-19 specific sermon series, not one any of us would have wished to have. In the beginnings, there was this incredibly fluid and transitional, rapid-paced kind of put this church back together in virtual reality. In that first sermon, we heard about Matthew 5, the call of the church to be salt and light, particularly as it is relevant to this emerging then pandemic. In that sermon, if you remember, if you were here, if not, I'm going to share with you a little bit about what that was. We've looked at our church fathers and mothers of the third century amidst their own pandemic. In fact, one of the deadliest and long-lasting pandemics in world history as we know it. Today, I want us to briefly to go back to that first sermon, to remember the legacy of our fathers and mothers of history past, as it is going to go directly into this sermon itself. For then, the pandemic began in Ethiopia in 250 AD and reached Rome by 251. It ultimately spread all the way to Greece and Syria and lasted for approximately 20 years in an age without vaccines. It claimed millions, millions of lives throughout the empire. At its worst, the plague killed up to 5,000 people in a day and in a region about the size of New England. According to both Christian and non-Christian accounts, the church's response to the dread, the suffering, and the death of their pandemic then was one of the main catalysts for the church's explosive growth in those early years. We heard how the church's witness made such a strong impression on Roman society that even pagan Roman emperors complained to pagan priests about their declining numbers, telling them to step it up like the Christians are doing. So what did Christians do so differently that shook the Roman Empire? And what can the early church teach us in the light of the coronavirus, we asked. We heard from one eyewitness, Bishop Dionysius of Alexandria, and how he, he recorded how from the onset of the pandemic, non-Christians in Alexandria pushed their fellow sufferers away and fled from their dearest even, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as if dirt. The fear led to a hysteria in the room and empire. But in contrast, the non-Christian emperor Julian Notice I'm giving testimony from the Christian about the non-Christians and the non-Christian about the Christians. Julian, the emperor, complained in his A.D. 262 epistle how the Hellenists, that is the Christians, needed to, I mean the Hellenists of that day, needed to match the Christians, the Galileans, in virtue, blaming the recent growth of Christianity on Christians' benevolence to strangers, and I'm quoting here, their care for the graves of even our dead and the holiness of their lives. He then wrote, It is a disgrace that the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Julian freely explained that if the non-Christian response to the plague was characterized by self-protection and self-preservation and avoiding the sick at all costs, the Christian's response was just the opposite. 
According to Dionysius, the plague served as a school or a testing ground for the faith of the Christians. And in this detailed description of how Christians responded to the plague in Alexandria, he writes of how the best among them honorably served the sick until they themselves caught the disease and even died. All of this begs a question, doesn't it? The question which, what explained the difference between these Christians and these unbelievers? Why did Christians act as they did with such great courage and conviction, such as to put themselves at such great risk in order to sacrificially love one another, even their unbelieving neighbor? Was it their demographics, per se? Was it their bloodlines? What was it? They all shared that, more or less. Well, the answer is summed in two words. Resurrection joy. Resurrection joy? Amidst the deadliest pandemic in world history? According to historian Rodney Stark, the rise of Christianity, he observed how for all that Julian urged pagan priests to do in order to match these Christian practices, there was little or no response because there was no convictional basis for them to build upon. Indeed, based on the transcripts of sermons and pastoral letters during this third century pandemic, it has been a startling discovery for me as a pastor now for over 28 years. It was startling how bold these pastors were, not to talk around the fear, but to talk right through it. Again, I think here of Cyprian, and in his letter, his pastoral letter to his flock in that day. This pastor, among a regional bishop there, wrote this to his congregation again. I repeat it from that first sermon. For the Christian death, death is a release from conflict, a summons of Christ leading to immortality. The faithful departed should not be mourned, since we know that they are not lost but sent before. No, Cyprian was not unaware of the loss and the grief of the passing of a loved one. He'd experienced it himself in his own family. He was not unaware of the cries of Christ when one of his friends died in the scripture. Many call it the shortest sentence in the gospels. He cried. But he was aware of a kind of joy, a kind of power that would transcend even the power of grief. Notice it wasn't enough for Cyprian then just to concede to death. It was to, in the cross of Christ, followed by the resurrection, to celebrate it. Don't we hear in Cyprian something of the defiance that he no doubt must have learned from the Apostle Paul? In 1 Corinthians 15, he says this about his ministry, I delivered to you as of the first importance what I also received, that Christ died, yes, for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, but that he was raised. On the third day, in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to 
Cephas, Peter, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time. And here's the clincher. Most of whom were all still alive. Those who would have known or not known if all of this was a hoax or not. He says, death, shaking his fist, I imagine, is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Mockingly. To be sure, Cyprian sought healing and, and recovery in this life. But as we learn in this Good Friday service, a service dedicated to healing, the answer to the prayer of those who by faith, through grace in Jesus Christ, are united to him as righteous before his sight, we know that our answer is yes and yes. Yes, he may choose to heal us now, but at best that's we know a, a temporary healing. And so a double yes, he will heal us. And death becomes the portal through which we enter healing. Again, in the words of Cyprian, the faithful departed should not be mourned, since we know that they are not lost, but they have been sent before us into heavenly bliss. And for those who are alone, who, are, who remained, he urged them to be single-minded, Firm in faith, steadfast in courage, ready for God's will, whatever it may be, banishing the fear of death and the think of the eternal life that follows and how this would show people that we really live our faith. Only this perspective is the product of only one thing, resurrection joy. Indeed, Paul will say, as we transition to our passage, a passage that perhaps is one of the best books in the Bible to discern how all this actually works. What's the mechanics of how this becomes real in our life? Because we say it in our platitudes, but do we actually let our lives and our emotions and our practices respond to it? I confess before you, I have sinned as I see, not yet, as I pray for it, not yet, the response of our fathers and mothers. It's Paul when he says, in the face of his own impending death, rejoice always. And again, I will say, rejoice. Was this some kind of positive thinking, best practice? such as to avoid your fears and anxieties by thinking around them, a kind of positive thinking denial of the reality? Quite the contrary. We see how Paul's advice for how to deal with the fear of suffering and even death is to think right through these things as to discover those convictions that he describes in our text as honorable and just and true and pure and lovely and commendable, excellence and therefore worthy of our praise. And as we'll see, all rooted and grounded in a resurrection joy. Father, please come 
take this great history of our Christian family, wet it with the convictions that they discovered to be true, that we might follow after them in discovering it for ourselves now and in this day, that we really might be changed by this Easter celebration, the resurrection of Christ. We pray in Christ's name, amen. In an abbreviated way, let me just summarize what Paul is saying here in this text. Again, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Just notice this impassionate exhortation. It's emphatic. It's not equivocal. He's not saying if you can, oh, we know we really can't. No, he, he just commands it right out. And the command is said not once but twice. And what does Paul mean by rejoice? Notice Quickly, three observations. Notice, one, that Paul repeats the command as pertaining to the present and future. Rejoice now, in other words, it's an active now present. And again, I will say, future rejoice. Does Paul know the future circumstances such as to know that he can rejoice in them? Of course not. Obviously not, which already begins to tilt the meaning of this passage to a kind of joy that cannot be, by definition, circumstantially bound or based. Second observation. Notice whatever it is, it is applicable, according to Paul, to everything. Rejoice in the Lord always. For Paul, rejoicing is not a condition upon circumstance again. Rejoice in the Lord always. And notice also how he repeats that in the negative. About the negative, be anxious for nothing. It might readily come across as a lack of empathy. Maybe even judgmentalness. But for Paul, and I want you to hear this very carefully. This is a nuance, very important. For Paul... It wasn't being judgmental. It was being compassionate. You see, he, Paul would distinguish what might be a trip attribute of weakness in our lives versus wickedness in our lives. One can be weak in faith, and yet this is not the same as wicked in faith. Temptation to sin is perhaps different than sinning. It's a hard line to draw theologically, honestly. But at least categorically, it is a distinction that Paul makes elsewhere very clear. In 2 Corinthians 13, 9, he says it this way, For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. There is a weak and strong aspect to this. And therefore, the exhortation is to those who would, in their weakness, struggle with compassion. The exhortation is meant to empower us not to lose heart in that struggle to rejoice. In fact, to be emboldened to understand that with the exhortation comes the ability to, to actually meet it. God doesn't command us something we can't do. This brings me then to this first point about rejoicing, that it transcends any and all circumstances, even as it sets in motion 
an ambition in our lives. An ambition that's no longer just conceding, oh yeah, God. It's going to change our prayers to be kingdom-minded prayers. It's going to change our actions. It's going to change our emotions. Everything to rejoice is to be empowered. Not to wither away in a concessionary tone. Listen to our prayers. Think about our plans. Notice how rejoicing would change all that. You see, Paul's point is that there is a principle or conviction-based reaction that is applicable to any situation such that we in Christ become the master of our circumstances. Think about how we are bullied by our circumstances. Think about how we allow so passively for these circumstances to wash over us and bully us. How it tends to master us. To be sure, don't misunderstand me, it's a good thing to be and to live situationally. Good practices, like good leadership, is always situationally adaptive. But don't confuse that. Paul's point again is that there is a conviction that should determine that should that should determine our response to situations rather than situations determining our inner convictions of faith. Here's a second point. Here we begin to ask the question then well how can we come to that place in our life? Notice, secondly, how this rejoicing is rooted in faith-based conviction as to become our first and most precious reality. Notice verse 5. Let your reasonableness in the English be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, that's a bit of an unfortunate translation. The English translation of the original Greek word reasonableness could sound, in our present use of that, could sound like we are to rejoice when it seems reasonable to us. Or maybe when it's considered reasonable by any other person or peer. I mean, we Christians don't want to feel or appear a little bit of fanatical, would we? And there we slip under their reasonable, you know, a reasonable faith. Not, you know, as in, you know, that fits the modern categories of reason. That would be the opposite of what Paul is saying here. A better translation would be a, something akin to a faith-informed conviction. That is, a faith-reasoned conviction, such as to result in what many other translations will call patience or forbearance related to a fearful or anxious situation. A reasoned, a faith-reasoned conviction became to a Christian a shield in this manner against being bullied by anxiety of circumstances. Notice, for instance, how Paul, in the very next verse, explains what he means, just in case we didn't get it from a word study. He says, and then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Here it is again. A peace that surpasses understanding. What's he talking about? He's not saying irrational He's saying in our sight, in our feelings, it surpasses our experience of understanding. 
Scripture everywhere, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that were visible. And he makes that point later to say, as we've, as we've seen before, that, that we walk by faith. But faith is a historical, fact-based reality when we come to the resurrection. It's not faith in a myth. It's not faith in wishful thinking. It's certainly not positive thinking. Brings me to my third point. We rejoice because then of this conviction, this reasoned faith-based conviction because of the reality of Christ's resurrection. Look what he says in verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now this is key. And again, I need to slow down. The grounds for our rejoicing in everything, such as to transcend all circumstances, however much they might seem to be tragic, is that the Lord is at hand. Ugos in the Hebrew, in the Greek. Near. What does Paul mean by at hand? Now, again, be careful. Don't insert here a temporary proximity, of course, as in a time or even as in a geography. Think here near relative to near us or relevant to us. Near and relevant. You say, well, how do you get that? Well, you can go look at its use elsewhere in Scripture. That's what we do, especially if Paul uses the word. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, this is exactly what he means. When he says a people who are near to God, what he means is in good relationship to God, who are restored to God, who now the convictions and the doctrines pertaining to our salvation in Christ become relevant because they're near us. They are in our minds, they're in our hearts, they're in our souls, they are informing everything we do kind of a near. And so this is how Paul reiterates it in the very next verse. Again, we slow down and we see these things. Again, this peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, that is the nearness of Christ, the inness. We are in him in the way we live our life. Intimate language here, communion language here. And what then are these benefits that he's talking about? What are these benefits? Well, again, let's look at the passage. Don't insert all this stuff that we do when we rip it out of Philippians. He further clarifies, what am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. What is that? The gospel. And he says, therefore, live out these things. Practice these things in the English translation, and the God of peace will be with you. Ah, we're not left to speculation, praise God. Now we know exactly what Paul is talking about relative to the Philippians, since he specifically just got through summarizing this in the previous chapter, verses 3. The Lord is near. He explains in chapter 3 how that nearness results in our knowing and having confidence, as we heard earlier, in the absolution that we are accepted and cherished by God. Do you know that right now? As you're sitting at home, maybe some of you alone, Fearful for your own life, the life of others? Do you know that you are cherished by God? That you are forgiven? That you have no need to justify yourself anymore because you have been justified? 
by Christ, who substituted for you in this great covenantal transaction as our covenant executor or power of attorney? Secondly, do you understand, says Paul, that now Christ is risen, is seated at the right hand of God, and, and therefore we can, in his words, experience the power of Christ's resurrection. And then he adds in Philippians, even through your sufferings. Verse 10 of chapter 3. He goes off on this. He goes off on this in his own context. Oh, that I might know him. Oh man, I can just see him now closing his eyes, relishing the thought that the same power that raised Christ from the dead, as he explains in Romans, is the same power that works in me. And he goes on to say that I may know him. That is to experience fully not only my acceptance and my love and my being cherished by him, but I might know his power. And he says that, that I might know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in death, in defiance of that death, in the power of the resurrection. 2 Corinthians 4.8 gives a wonderful commentary to Paul's thinking here. He says, we are afflicted in every way, you look at the life of Paul, that is not an understatement, or an overstatement, I should say. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we don't despair. This gets to Christ's resurrection, part one. That is the impact upon us now, the power of the resurrection now that takes even our suffering and uses it as to put to death something in our old self that needed to die so that when we die, like a grain of seed that's buried into the ground, it will produce tenfold, a hundredfold, manyfold because of the power of death followed by resurrection. It's the very analogy that Christ used, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but it dies, it bears much fruit. Paul says, let me share in that fruit, Lord. That's his motive. He's not, he's not some killjoy. He's not over there bringing self-flagellation on himself. Oh, let me share in the sufferings of Christ. Take up my cross, fall after him. Yeah, he wants to do that, but he wants to do that out of the optimism of the power of the resurrection. A promise to bear great fruit. Resurrection part two. We're justified. You could say we're sanctified in the power of part one of the resurrection. Now we're glorified in the power of part two of God's resurrection. That by any means possible, he says in chapter three, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's where it's all going. I think here of this incredible statement that he then says in verse three, I mean, verse 20, chapter 3, he says, this place, this, this resurrection from the dead, he goes, there, our citizenship will be in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to do subject and to subject all things to himself. Our old way of relating to God by works versus faith is put aside. 
Our old way of relating to God in our own strength is put, a, put, it, put away in place of the resurrection power of God. Our old way of dealing with death based on no hope of resurrection is put away. And the way we deal with death based on the hope of the resurrection, that's what we can be ambitious for and expect. Think about this. The Lord is at hand. It results in a new way of dealing with suffering, doesn't it? It's not, let me say this carefully, it's not rejoicing that suffering is. We grieve it. It's, it's a result of the fall. It's a result of a curse that we brought upon ourselves. We don't rejoice that suffering is. Rather, we rejoice that we suffer not as others do without the fear of its ultimate consequence. In fact, we rejoice that in our sufferings it becomes the very cross in our lives by which we are born again into a newness of life. God has turned it on its head. Resurrection leading to joy. This was a pretty new discovery for me because I started to think about this, and you know me, I'm a little bit cynical in my study. I said, okay, God, I want to put this for the test. And what I mean by that, a biblical test, okay? I just decided to do this expansive word study this week on the word here in the Greek, rejoice. I wanted to find out how it was used everywhere else in the New Testament. <laughs> Practically. I didn't go everywhere, but I just about did. This was what I discovered. It was really a profound moment for me. Almost every time it's used, it's either used more infrequently as a salutation, like hail to the Jews, or you know, some kind of rejoice, as in, hey, happy day. Sometimes it's used like that. Became a code word. But almost always otherwise. It's used in the context of some kind of suffering or challenge or obstacle. Wherein to rejoice by its very definition is to discover the kind of power that surprises you. The kind of power that this world can't possibly understand without the conviction of the resurrection. Corinthians 1.24, I rejoice as I suffer for you. You see it? Rejoice and be glad, says Jesus, for your reward is great in heaven, so they persecuted you, the prophets, and were going before you. Rejoice, because God turns even persecution into redemption and salvation for you. I could go on. What's the take-home of this sermon? Resurrection joy is real. We are back to where we began in the treaties of Cyprian. For the Christian death is a release from conflict, a summons of Christ leading to immortality. The faithful departed should not be mourned since we know that they are not lost but sent before. For those who remain, to be single-minded, to no longer be bullied by the circumstances that surround us. What is it we fear so much about the coronavirus? I mean, think about it. Isn't it ultimately the loss of that which we think we need to live and flourish, whatever that might be? Isn't the fear of death? Yes, but it's the fear of death to health, death to a job, 
death to financial security, death of a loved one's, death of a financial situation. It goes on and on. To close this, I want to do a comparison, a contrast between one Ernest Beckler and one George Herbert. If you don't know, Ernest Beckler was an American cultural anthropologist, secularist, and author of the 1974 Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Denial of Death. In The Denial of Death, this 1970 work, he engaged both psychology and philosophy in which Beckler builds on the works of Soren Kierkegaard and, and Freud and others. The premise of his book, The Denial of Death, is that human civilization is ultimately an elaborate symbolic defense mechanism against the knowledge of our mortality. Our fear of death, he says, is at the core of all our psychological disturbances and our motivations for life. Contrary to Freud, for instance, quote, consciousness of death is the primary repression, not sexuality. Now, here's the way he poignantly explained it. Listen carefully. This is the terror of death. To have emerged from nothing, to have a name, consciousness of self, deep inner feelings, excruciating inner yearnings for life and self-expression, and to have all of this and yet to die? It seems like a hoax. What kind of deity would create such complex and fancy worm food? You hear and see and feel the image of a body rotting in the ground. The fear of that image, he says, drives everything we do. He further acknowledges that humanity has a unique awareness of his or her own splendid uniqueness. All human beings rightly feel we are significant and that we stick out from all of the rest of nature with this tiring majesty, and yet death means we go back into the ground. A few feet to blindly and dumbly rot and disappear into forever. This idea of death and the fear of it haunts us like nothing else, and dealing with it is the mainstream of all our activity. Everything in modern culture, all problems is explained in that secular culture has no way of dealing with death. Quote, the irony of man's condition is that the deepest need is to be the free of the anxiety of death and annihilation, but it is life itself which awakens us to it. So we must shrink from being fully alive to avoid it. This is what we are truly left with without Christ's resurrection. That's where we are. Contrast. George Herbert, 17th century Christian poet and priest of the Anglican Church of England. I gave it to you in your, your meditation at the very beginning. He is quoted as saying, quote, death used to be an executioner. But because of Jesus Christ, the gospel has been made death just a gardener. Notice the contrast between the 
rot in the worms, and now a tilling of a seed to flourish again. We don't know exactly where that quote came from. I tried everywhere to find it, and everyone concedes that it's everywhere attributed to him, but we don't know where. But we do know at least how he might come to this. Because he did pen this amazing poem called, quote, The Fear of Death, or Death, just the word death. I want to read that quote to you for slowly. Death. Thou wast once an uncouth and hideous thing, nothing but bones, the sad effect of sadder groans. Thy mouth was open, but thou couldst sing. For we considered thee, is it some six or ten years hence, after the loss of life and sense, flesh being turned to dust and bones to sticks. We looked on this side of thee, shooting short, where we did find the shells of fledged souls left behind. Dry dust which sheds no tears but may extort. But since our Savior's death did put some blood into thy face, thou art grown fair and full of grace, much in request, much sought for as a good. For we do not now behold thee gay and glad as at doomsday, when souls shall wear their new array, and all the bones and beauty shall be clad. Therefore we can go die as sleep, and trust half that we have unto an honest, faithful grave, making our pillows either down or dust. Huh. It's sleep, bodily sleep, even as our spirits go immediately be with the Lord, awaiting the reunion of body and spirit, or it's dust, it's death. It's a pillow, this ground, or it's rot, this ground. Today we celebrate that it's a pillow. Really, it is. It really is. It's a fact. Christ is risen today. It changes everything. I repeat the words of Paul in chapter 4, verse 8. We heard it read this morning. Here's the way he concludes this amazing treatise on resurrection joy. And so, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think upon these things. For what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen indeed.